Hello, 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 and welcome once again to Corpus Cast. As ever, I'm your host, Robbie Love, and I'm a linguist at Aston University. You're listening to the Aston Originals podcast, all about corpus linguistics and what it can do for society. Together, as always, we'll explore how corpus linguistics is informing the present and shaping the future of the study of language with applications in education, health and technology, among many others. Before we begin, I want to start this episode by paying tribute to a friend and colleague here at Aston who recently we very sadly lost, Dr. Martin Petico. Uh, a research associate in the Aston Institute for Forensic Linguistics and a brilliant corpus linguist. Martin was a much loved and respected member of the research community at Aston and beyond, and he made a substantial contribution to research at the intersection of forensic linguistics and corpus linguistics. My thoughts are with uh, Martin's family, friends and colleagues at this time, and this episode of Corpus Cast is dedicated to him. Now, on to today's episode. Our topic is the application of corpus linguistics to research in business communication. For those watching us on video, uh, you'll notice that for the first time in quite a while, we are back here live in the Corpus Cast Studios. That's not the official name, but that's what I like to call it anyway, uh, here on the campus at Aston University. Uh, and that's because I'm thrilled that my guest today is joining us in person. Uh, so to tell me all about his research in business communication is Dr. Matteo Fuoli, Associate Professor of Corpus-Based Discourse Analysis at the University of Birmingham. Uh, Matteo's research combines corpus linguistic and experimental methods with discourse analysis to study the linguistic factors at the heart of important societal issues such as trust, polarization, and climate change. And these are some of the topics we'll be discussing in today's episode. So without any further ado, Matteo, welcome to Corpus Cast. Thank you very much for coming to visit us here at Aston. Thank you very much, Robbie. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, it's a rare treat, I must say, to <laughs> yeah. have uh, our guest live and in person. I'm not going to reach over and touch you, but uh, <laughs> uh, just to prove that we are in the same room at the same time. Uh, and and that's, that's really very nice of you to, to come and visit us. So okay. thank you. Um, I want to start by asking you the question that I ask all of my guests here on Corpus Cast. What does Corpus Linguistics mean to you? Great. Um, yeah, good, good question to start off. <laughs> um, I think I see Corpus Linguistics as a sort of magnifying glass that lets us spear into the fabric of language and discourse. So to me, Corpus Linguistics is uh, this powerful yet flexible method that we can use to discover really interesting things about the way people communicate um, and patterns, uh, including those patterns that might not be obvious at first sight. Um, I, really, I really like the quantitative aspect of, of Corpus Linguistics. Uh, I find, you know, uh, like the numbers give me a sort of uh, sense of validation for for my claims, my observations, my conclusions. They uh, numbers don't lie, right? They're mm. uh, there for everyone to see, and so I really enjoyed that aspect of doing corpus linguistic research. But I also see corpus linguistics as not just a purely quantitative me method, right? It's not just about crunching numbers. To me, as a 
discourse analyst primarily, as I think that's, you, you know, as I see myself. Uh -huh. um, it, the quantitative and the qualitative aspects of uh, corpus linguistic uh, research are equally important. Uh, and often, if you stop at the numbers, then you, you, you risk um, getting a, an incomplete and sometimes even a skewed picture of, of the texts mm. that you're studying. Uh, one example, one case in point is a recent study that um, I've uh, done together with a brilliant colleague from the, um, from the Birmingham uh, Business School, Annika Bielitz, uh, where we looked at um, how large corporations are talking about climate change, as you were um, just anticipating earlier. Mm. And uh, um, what we did is look at how you know, the, these companies are discussing the issue of climate change. And uh, when, when we looked at the frequencies and the keywords related to climate change, what we saw is that in recent years, there's been a real uh, upsurge in, 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 in discussion and in interest in, uh, by, by companies in this uh, topic. And that, you know, if you stopped at that, you would think, oh, great, they're finally getting it. They're, <laughs> they've decided to do something about it. But then when we dug deeper and, um, you know, painstakingly uh, analyzed hundreds of concordance lines, then we discovered, a, a, you know, a whole world of like inconsistencies and contradictions and even like subtle um, legitimating sort of strategies that these companies are using to essentially justify the status quo. So, so I think to me, the beauty of corpus linguistics, when especially when applied to the analysis of discourse, is that you kind of get the best of both worlds, both both like the quantitative aspect that gives you a lot of like confidence in your in your results and mm. empirical solid empirical evidence, but also like the new ones that can only come from from qualitative analysis. So you're a discourse analyst, corpus linguist, and you've got your magnifying glass. I really like <laughs> that metaphor. It's great. Yeah, yeah. You're effective, you know, you're trolling through millions of words right. of data. Um, but how did that, you know, how did you get to this point? What what initially drove your interest in in language? Because it's I'm sure I've said this to to others uh, on previous episodes before. It, it's very rare that I meet someone in this sort of line of work who woke up one day <laughs> and said, that's what I want to do. So how did it happen for you? When did you first become interested in studying language mm -hmm. and how people use language to get things done? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I think looking back, I, well, first of all, I, I studied uh, in, back in my uh, uh, hometown uh, in the Northeast of Italy, mm -hmm. uh, this, this really pretty uh, mid-sized city in the uh, in the middle of the Alps, uh, um, and I did a BA and uh, subsequently uh, a two-year MA um, in foreign languages for business and tourism. Uh, ah. So it was like a kind of hybrid degree that was com that combined like the study of foreign languages with uh, lots of modules uh, in business and tourism studies, and that's where I first, uh, I guess, got exposed to the some of the research topics that I'm still interested in but I think it wasn't until the towards the end of my MA that I I started uh really getting really excited about this um I think two there were two I guess uh main factors one one was a, a really uh inspiring module uh taught by um Professor Marina Bondi uh, who I'm sure a lot of the listeners uh uh 
will know and and uh, they'll be familiar with with her work uh that that was a module on the language of business and that's mm. literally what set me off uh into the path I'm, I'm still in today i guess and then the other thing was i did a, a year abroad in australia so i went off to australia to uh, you know study there and uh that's where i was exposed to uh, things like uh, systemic functional linguistics and uh, appraisal theory that was really that, um, you know, uh, made a, a big impact mm. in, in, in my own research. Uh, so, so that's when I decided, right, I, I really want to do this. This is fun. <laughs> this is, you know, exciting. Yeah. And, and so you start with, you know, learning about these various approaches and frameworks and theories your interest in business communication. At what point did this scale up, so to speak, into becoming the detective of the magnifying glass, <laughs> the corpus linguistics part? When, mm -hmm. when did that happen mm -hmm. for you? I think it started uh, when I was working on my MA uh, dissertation, uh, which later turned into my my first publication. Uh, ah. So, so I um, I think I was really inspired by m both of my supervisors. Uh, so my uh, lead supervisor was uh, Marco bon, um, um, Marco Baroni. Sorry. Um, so he's a superstar in the field of uh, natural language processing, and uh, he was uh, so he had a, a, a real impact in my way of, of sort of thinking about language, and especially like from a methodological perspective, uh, how do you go about studying language empirically and in a way that is systematic and as objective as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, so I remember, um, so at the time I, I had just come back from, from Australia and I, um, I was really excited about discourse analysis and reading all about like appraisal theory and evaluative language. Um, a lot of which is based on qualitative analysis sometimes of like, uh, you know, single texts or, um, just small collections of text, very interpretive, which mm. of course has its place. But I, then I would come to uh, our supervision uh, sessions and he was like, uh, at first, I think as a way of like helping me think more systematically about these things, more empirically, he was really challenging some of the things that I came up with in my own analysis and uh, pushed me to uh, be as rigorous as possible. And uh and that's where I, I think I got uh, really into uh, more quantitative methods and, and corpus linguistic techniques. Um, and then I just, you know, through, um, throughout my PhD, um, uh, which I did in Sweden, in Lund, uh, I also uh, pursued that and uh, read a lot about corpus-assisted discourse studies and uh, try to apply it into to my, to my, own, my own work. Tell me about Lund then, because we, we recently had Carita uh, Paradis right. uh, yeah. also at Lund, uh, Nella Polvia, who yeah. also did her yeah. PhD at Lund. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, what was the, the, the Lund experience like for you? The then? Lund experience was amazing. Life, truly life-changing. And I think I would be here if, mm. if, you know, if it wasn't for that. And... Um, and I think, uh, you know, to a large part, that's thanks to, to Carita, uh, Carita Paradis, who uh, was also my supervisor and uh, who is, you know, not only like a, a brilliant academic, uh, so knowledgeable and so, uh, you, you, you know, uh, 
so competent and and wide ranging in her interests, uh, but also like the best supervisor I could hope for. Really, uh, I I owe her a lot uh, mm. in that in that way. Hugely supportive. Um, her door was always open. I could literally just you know pop by her office, yeah. and and she she made a lot of time for for me, and and also I think um, for for all of her. Uh, supervisees. So, so it was a fantastic experience um, all around, I would say. Uh, lots of opportunities, lots of space to develop my own ideas, my own like um, sort of, I guess, path. Mm. Um, and um, to also do some teaching experience, uh, to get some teaching experience and to, to do many different things that are important uh, for us, you know, to develop as academics, I guess. Gosh, we're getting to the point of Corpus Cast being, you know, I didn't mention earlier, this is our... Um, final episode of 2023, the end of our second year of Corpus Cast. Apparently, Corpus Cast is so old now that I'm starting mm. to interview <laughs> generations of the same <laughs> academic family, you know, your your academic uh, parents, if you will. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Carita yeah. Paredes and now you. And yes, we're going to be getting the family tree that's of right. Corpus Linguists over the years. <laughs> Gosh, um, that's that's great. And, and, you know, all of these things put together sort of have, you know, helped you to to get to the, the place you are now. You're yeah. obviously working at University of Birmingham, just down the road. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And of course, our topic today, as I mentioned at the beginning, is your research in business communication. Mm-hmm. This is also uh, sometimes referred to as corporate discourse, yeah. or maybe these aren't exactly the same, but I wonder if you could start just by maybe distinguishing what we mean uh, when we're talking about corporate discourse and the kinds of contexts that, mm-hmm. that, that you've studied. Right, yeah. I think, um, you know, Different scholars use th- these terms sometimes interchangeably. Mm. Sometimes they they make a distinction. Corporate discourse being more like outward facing um, institutional types of communication from large companies. Uh, business communication tends to have a, a wider remit, if you like, uh, including both uh, written texts and multimodal texts produced by companies to communicate to outside audiences, but also communication that goes on in the daily operation of a company. Mm-hmm. Um, so my research, if we if we keep that distinction, I'd, I'd say my research is mainly in the area of corporate discourse. Um, so I'm interested in particular in how companies communicate to different audiences, how they use language strategically to achieve important organizational goals, such as building trust, such as positioning themselves with respect to important societal issues like climate change. And I think perhaps like when... When people hear the terms business communication and corporate discourse, they might think, gosh, this sounds really like serious and a bit dull. (laughs) But I find it absolutely fascinating. Uh, And there are two main reasons for this. First of all, um, the types of texts that companies produce are really carefully and skillfully uh, crafted texts. So there's a, you know, there are really competent professionals that work to, 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 to create these texts. And so um, that means that there's a lot of really interesting rhetorical and linguistic stuff going on in these texts. Mm. And, and, and just uh, selfishly, I just enjoy picking that apart. And I think it's quite fun to do in and of itself as, a, as an intellectual, if you like, activity. But I think there's a, a bigger um, motivation for, for doing this that I think is, is really important. And to me, corporate discourse 
is an important subject for research because it provides a window into um, really important and, and really powerful ideological forces that shape our society. Like, if you think about it, corporations are really powerful. Mm. They have a lot of uh, financial resources. They have lobbying power. Uh, so what they say matters. What they say matters because uh, uh, it will influence uh, and contribute to shaping what we all feel, the debate around important issues such as climate change, such as uh, equality and gender issues and, you know, all the rest of it. So, so I think um, by studying these texts, we can uh, gain, you know, helpful insights potentially to, to um, learn how to, or to, to reflect on how things could be done better. Mm. Um, so I think that's on a broader societal level. You, you mentioned earlier um, your your recent paper. Uh, I think it's in the International Journal of Corpus Linguistics, looking at um, the responses of of big corporations uh, to the Paris Agreement mm -hmm. in their sustainability mm -hmm. reports. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about about this this study. Um, which sorts of corporations are we talking about here? Um, and what are the sorts of ways that they are, you know, presenting their 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 role in in you know a responsible future mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. moving towards net zero and, and right. these sorts of topics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so that's um, a study where, uh, as I said before, my colleague Annika Bielitz and I uh, looked at how the uh, one hundred top corporate polluters, so the most polluting companies, uh, the companies that are responsible historically for the largest proportion of carbon emissions are talking about climate change and carbon emissions in their sustainability reports. For those of you who are not familiar with, with these texts, these are official documents that most corporations uh, produce and release every year where they document what they're doing to uh, address issues like climate change, but also um, other uh, societal societal issues. And so um, what we were interested in doing in, in that study is exploring whether uh, these companies have kept the pace of the evolving debate around climate change. Now, we know that a lot of these companies, a lot of these companies are, I should say, um, uh, fossil fuel companies mm -hmm. um, from Europe, um, America, but also from the Middle East and all over the world. And uh, traditionally and, and historically, fossil fuel companies have um, been quite, Res resisting to, to 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 the idea of changing the way they do things. Of course, like it, you know, the now we know, and there's uh, it's undisputed that their products are the leading cause of of climate change, right? Mm. But for a long time, they they've tried to obfuscate the truth. They've tried to, um, um, I guess block the debate around these issues. And there are, you know, uh, there's evidence that uh, companies like, for instance, ExxonMobil um, uh, actually actively interfered um, with climate change regulation. They funded 
They funded um, uh, climate denialist groups uh, and campaigns and so on. So, um, you know, a lot of that is happened in the 80s and the 90s. And what we were interested in, in, in exploring in this paper is, has their discourse changed at all? Now that, you know, the debate around it, the consensus around climate change is really uh changed mm. and, and and I think you know the, the Paris Agreement encapsulates that. It's the whole world saying, all right, this is happening. This is real. So what what are we going to do about it? And so and so that was the motivation behind the study. And so we compiled a big corpus of the sustainability reports over a 10 year uh period, five years from 2011 to 2020, so five years before and five years after the the Paris Agreement, mm. and uh, uh, in that way we we set out uh, to uh, see whether there are any patterns, any mm. changes in the way they so talk about this. How many reports are we talking about here? So we're talking about several hundred reports. Uh, so not all of these uh, uh, hundred companies. Uh, actually publish sustainability reports, which in and of itself is an interesting, I think, um, mm. glimpse into their modus operandi and their thinking around these issues, the, the, how, much, how important they believe the, the, these things are. Um, so yeah, over, over the 10 year period, you would have roughly 100 reports per year. Mm. So it's, it's a sizable corpus, um, definitely. Yeah, uh, and and the reports are also quite extensive in some cases. So, so there's a lot of text. <laughs> <laughs> and and what are you you know you, you I'm sort of zooming out and kind of corpus linguistics 101. Mm -hmm. You've got these mm -hmm. hundreds of reports. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Presumably, you know, in terms of words, we're into the hundreds of thousands, maybe yeah. millions at this millions, stage. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, are you going in with? a fixed kind of these, this is what we're looking for, mm -hmm. or is it more mm -hmm. of an, mm -hmm. an exploratory approach? I mean, people talk about the deductive and kind mm. of inductive kind of distinction. Yeah. Which side of the fence would, would this approach fit on? And basically I'm asking, what, mm -hmm. what do you do? What are you looking for text? To, to sort of help you answer mm -hmm. your questions? Mm -hmm. you know? Right. I think, so first of all, we went into the corpus with a clear, uh, idea of what we wanted to, to test out. So we wanted to see, the, the, one of the main questions, the driving question was, has uh, the Paris Agreement had any effect on the way that these companies uh, approach the subject of climate change mm. and carbon emissions? And so for us, the, the natural first step was to compare the texts uh, published before the Paris Agreement with those published after the Paris Agreement. Um, so what we did as a starting point is a keyword analysis where we treated the texts before uh, Paris as the reference corpus um, and the texts published after uh, the agreement as the focus corpus. And so that enabled us to um, see what the dominant sort of themes were in the texts published after the agreement and to gauge the extent to which climate related issues were uh, an important topic right um which we found it was uh, mm -hmm. so as I, as i mentioned at the start like you see there's there's there are a lot a lot of the keywords are related to to climate change um and carbon emissions um, but we didn't 
we didn't stop there because, mm. as I said before, that would just give you a, a very rough and ready and partial picture of, of the discourse. So we use that as the uh, foundation to then go uh, to, if you like, direct our attention to salient bits of language, uh, which we then further explored more in depth using uh, concordance, an concordance analysis and collocate analysis. Mm. So just to give you an example, one of the findings that um, stood out was the use of the word zero uh, in, in, the, in the reports published after the, the agreement. Uh, that came up as a, as a keyword, as a significant keyword. And so we, we um, looked further into it and it turns out, uh, predictably, it's used a lot in the phrase net zero. Mm. So there's a lot to talk of net zero in the reports uh, after Paris. Um, and so then what we did is uh, examined random concordance lines containing that phrase to, uh, with the help of Van Lowen's uh, legitimation uh, framework to see how are these companies framing the goal of net zero of reaching carbon neutrality, what kind of solutions do are they discussing to, to get there? Um, and also, uh, we use also collocate analysis to, to help us with that. Um, yeah, to get a, I guess, a more complete sort of sense of, of the function of, of this phrase. And we did that for other mm. words that we thought would carry, mm. you know, an important sort of, um, uh, meaning and 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 uh played an important mm. role in that discourse so so with net zero um again just treat me as uh, mm -hmm. a complete mm -hmm. novice mm -hmm. in, all, in, mm -hmm. in, in all of these but but my understanding is that 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 is essentially companies committing that eventually at some yeah. point in the maybe distant mm -hmm. future mm -hmm. um they will no longer be you know uh, producing excess uh, right. releasing excess yeah. carbon yeah. In, into into mm -hmm. the environment mm -hmm. co2 into the environment so that they what they um uh, offset mm -hmm. will make up for what mm -hmm. they produce right that's right is i i sense from what you're saying <laughs> where we're going is that they talk about it as yes we'll do it later but what are they doing right now is that kind of what, yeah what you've yeah found? i think i think that was a that was something that came out quite clearly mm. from 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 the analysis especially this additional follow-up uh collocate and, and qualitative concordance analysis of the phrase net zero uh it's quite striking when you look at the concordance list for uh sorry the collocate list mm. uh of um uh net zero you see a lot of uh, journey metaphorical language. Uh, okay. Yeah. You see a lot of um, desiderative words like ambition uh, or aspiration. Um, so, I mean, it, it does um, beg the question of how serious they are about this, right? And so I think the general discourse around net zero uh, really um, is quite non-committal. And um, dare I say, wishy-washy. Uh, you also have empirical research that we didn't do, but we draw on in our analysis that mm. shows that actually there's a huge disconnect between the pledges that these companies are making in terms of net zero um, and what the amount of investment that they've put into renewable energy, for instance. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of a lot you you will see a lot of. Uh, companies talking about renewable energies and investment in these technologies that are vital for us to get to to that uh, 
uh, goal of, of carbon neutrality. But then these investments are, uh, according to this other research that we are incorporating into our own, uh, dwarfed by the continued investment in, mm. in fossil fuels. Uh, so, so I think that was that was a striking striking kind of and and uh, discouraging to some extent finding, right? But important finding nonetheless, I think, to to really raise a flag, red flag. Uh, about these issues, yeah, absolutely, and, and and that comes out, you know, very clearly. Um, I'm I'm going to uh, read to you a quote, uh, which is actually the the final couple mm. of lines of of the paper that we're talking about here. Um, and uh, you say here, uh, looking back at over twenty years of research on corporate discourse of climate change, we find the same kind of aspirational talking points being repeated endlessly while global carbon emissions keep rising, aspirational talk is cheap, unless followed by action. And that does seem to be, you know, in the context of what can linguists mm -hmm. do to mm -hmm. try and raise mm -hmm. red flags, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, you know, getting a magnifying glass out <laughs> and taking your hundreds of reports, your mm -hmm. millions of words, mm -hmm. and, and looking over a period of time. It seems that, you know the 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 empirical kind of benefit of corpus linguistics in this context seems to be a way of trying to sort of more effectively hold corporations to account i suppose yeah, reminding yeah. them of their of of their words right absolutely absolutely yeah um and i think to some extent it's um also a way of uh hopefully informing debates and informing policy Right. I am, you know, when it comes to climate change, of course, we all as individuals need to do our bit and that's no way around it. But I think, um, you know, corporations have huge leverage and their investment decisions are going to have a massive impact uh, on on whether we we will be able to to to, to deal with this crisis or not. Uh, so I think hopefully, I, th I think the general goal, uh, uh, the wider goal, if you like, is uh, to um, provide, if you like, insights that can then inform those conversations mm. and, and uh, uh, I don't know, empower um, also uh, the uh, environmental movement, NGOs working in, in, in this general sort of area. Uh, to to really like bring home the message like mm. we need to be more serious about this right uh, what we find in these reports is a lot of legitimation especially like not all of not all of the companies i mean it's it's a very uh, fragmented picture that emerges from our analysis there are some companies that are more serious about this or this appear to be more serious about this than others mm. um like, for instance, European uh, oil and gas majors like Shell and BP do uh, foreground this theme of investment in renewables a lot more than U.S. companies. And U.S. companies, uh, for instance, they they still justify the the uh, the use of uh, the use of gas as a relatively cleaner uh, fossil fuel. They they would. Uh, uh, use pragmatic legitimation to to say actually you know energy consumption and energy demand is going to keep growing so fossil fuels are still going to be part of the energy mix for a long time and I think that's the crux of it like you you know if if we're serious about it 
we should rethink the whole thing mm. and definitely move away from from fossil fuels uh, entirely. Mm. And uh, presumably the elephant in the room, mm, really. Mm, and, and again, mm, I'm, I'm mm. naive, you know, relatively, but I'm guessing that mm -hmm. what we're talking about in terms of the what you might perceive to be a uh, resistance or mm -hmm. you know lackadaisical mm -hmm. approach to oh yeah. yes that's very interesting we'll do it you know later but we can't do it right now they can't we can't do it right now but presumably it's all about profits and, and that's right you know that's it's right not as profitable to yeah you know transition yeah 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 just that you know just to, uh to pick up on that uh i watched yesterday happened to watch this this uh, channel four uh report into some of the uh, uh um some of the major uh, oil companies, I, ca I can't remember the mm, details now, mm. but the gist of it was that uh, they've been able to, through sort of uh, prank calls, prank uh, Zoom uh, meetings with uh, some, uh, some of the executives from, from these uh, massive oil and gas conglomerates, they were able to um, uh, discover that essentially these companies are now um, aiming to um, boost the sale of internal combustion engines in uh, developing countries in Africa as a way of propping up uh, the, the you know sale mm. of, of fossil fuel products. Now that of course you know so a, a lot of countries are looking are trying to move away from from them. So so it's you know and you you you. Um, you set that against the rhetoric that you find in these reports, and that's quite, you know, disturbing. Mm -hmm. And it really does, I think, uh, make you question how trustworthy this particular mm. uh, form of communication is. Right? And I, I'm glad you mentioned trustworthy because I'm going to ask you about trust mm. in a moment. But <laughs> I'm actually going to ask you something I was going to ask at the end, but I'm going to ask it mm. now. Um, you mentioned about, you know, going from, you've done a study, like, and, and obviously you've done numerous studies on, mm. on this and other topics but let's take this we'll stick with this example yeah. for now you publish this paper and and you're 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 sat there with your magnifying glass in one hand and your red flag in the other waving them around <laughs> and going hey listen come on but but you know i, I mm. i've very much been in this situation where mm. you publish a paper mm. i'm going to change the world and then mm. the paper goes out and then nothing nothing happens <laughs> you know? right. or, or it doesn't or maybe things do happen but you don't know about them or mm -hmm. people or, or it mm -hmm. happens really slowly and incrementally yeah. and you there isn't necessarily that moment of boom yes yeah, okay we're going to run right. with that so you know i i think what you said is very sensible in terms of it's not necessarily about sort of attempting or, or sort of endeavoring to you know this one study is going to everyone's going to turn around mm -hmm. and go oh you were right. oh my goodness i had no idea you know because I don't know how you know aware these corporations are of this sort of research that's been mm -hmm. done mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. what they say mm -hmm. and whether mm -hmm. they take that mm -hmm. sort of thing seriously. And maybe you can say something about that in a second. Mm. But um, how do you? This is broader question, I suppose, mm -hmm. in terms of the the journey from research in isolation and and publishing your findings to impacts and and informing policy, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. working with NGOs. What what do you see as those roots? I'd like to hear a little bit more about the yeah. you know how how can this and and other examples of corpus research around climate change um, 
how can it get in to sort of make some kind of tangible difference? How do you, what, yeah. what do you see those pathways to impact, so mm -hmm. to use a, mm -hmm. a term that's quite popular in the research? Yeah, 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 yeah. Pathways to impact, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's a real sunbite thing. <laughs> yes, it is. Especially yeah. British academia. Yeah, 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 very much so. It's, it's, it's in there for some I didn't make it up, but it's in there somewhere for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... I think I think you're you're spot on. I mean, writing a paper in a way is the is the easiest thing that we can do, right? And it's also like the thing that we've been trained to do, mm. and 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 something that um, I guess you know matters to us, and that I think has some potential and is important. But it, it's it's it definitely is not the 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 uh, end goal. Mm. It doesn't stop mm. there. Right. So, so I think there are more effective ways of um, uh, creating change, and uh, but they're harder, <laughs> right? Much harder. And I think one one pathway to impact is um, partnering up with uh, organizations like NGOs, charities, even government departments, or even enlightened companies that really do want to take this seriously. Right. And so so I think, you, you know, we've seen um, really excellent work being done in other areas. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, uh, the work by Elena Semino, Gavin Brooks, you know, uh, people who have really uh, developed entire projects with a, a strong impact component mm. there. And I think that's a really great model, mm. but it's hard. It's mm. hard work. It's hard to, you, you know, of, of, of course, like. Getting funding for this is always really competitive, but we should keep trying. I think that's that's a really important uh, way uh, forward. And the other thing is, we really should try to break through the academic ceiling kind of thing and and break into the public debate around these issues. And I think um, what you're doing is great because I think you know it helps get the word out. So I think as linguists, we should make an effort to take every opportunity to uh, communicate our research in accessible, hopefully engaging ways, in ways that, you know, people can, um, I guess, feel like drawn into and engaged and, um, you know, uh, hopefully, um, yeah. Um, so that that is another way, another important way of, of trying to promote positive positive change and greater awareness around these important issues. Well, it's all thanks to to you and all the other mm. guests we've had so far <laughs> for making this happen. Otherwise, it would just be me talking to myself, which nobody <laughs> wants to hear. Um, but uh, but no, I, I absolutely agree. And 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 you know, I, I want to circle back now. You mentioned trust mm. before because mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. a totally separate um, uh, topic because you know, in any of these public communications. Mm -hmm. Presumably, these corporations want the readers to trust what they're saying and believe that mm -hmm. their intentions are mm -hmm. sincere. Um, but you have kind of separately studied trust mm -hmm. in, in corporate discourse as well, um, and clearly, this is something you know that 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 is important. So, what are what? Maybe the, maybe this is a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what 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 are if there if there is such a thing as the, the sort of typical linguistic mm. strategies mm. for for getting people to trust what you're writing in your sustainability report or whatever yeah. it is that these these big companies are putting out? Are there sort of patterns that mm -hmm. corpus research that you've done has has revealed that seem to appear time and time again as appearing to be 
yes, this is a way that they want the reader to trust what they're saying. That's right. Yeah. So I think, you know, your initial point is uh, very true. Companies need people to trust them, right? And, and like trust is such an important, they call it intangible asset for, for companies because um, if a company is trusted, they will have an easier time attracting customers, attracting talent and attracting investment. So it's really crucial. Um, and there's also an issue uh, of legitimacy at stake, right? So, so a company... And needs societal support to be able to continue to operate uh, freely and to, and to um, essentially um, use collective resources in the form of you know labor and natural resources for profit. Um, so I think trust is a, a is an important element of that. Like if we don't trust the company, if we feel that the company is rogue and trying to manipulate us mm. all the time, then eventually uh, there will be enough uh, uh, um, you know uh, public resistance uh, towards them that it, it might even cause the business to to collapse. People will start boycotting the company, and you know we've seen it time and time again. Uh, so one of the questions that I've been interested in, in, in my work is how do large companies use language as, as a tool for, for building trust? Um, so I've done different bits of research on this, but one, one of the uh, more corpusy kind of studies that I've done is one where I used, uh, Biber's, uh, stance framework to study how, um, these companies use, uh, evaluative language. Uh, to to craft a trustworthy corporate persona. Mm. So the and and the, the reason for focusing on evaluative language is that it's it's such an important uh, resource for uh, expressing our identity, for for uh, expressing who we are, what we like, what we don't like, what we what our values are, and it's also an important resource for managing interpersonal relationships. So I think there's a, a direct connection between evaluative language, which we study. Uh, using the fiber stance framework and the construct of trust. And so in that particular study that came out like a couple of years ago in applied linguistics, uh, I built uh, another quite large corpus of uh, annual financial reports and sustainability reports published by a sample of um, uh, large multinationals from different sectors. And the idea was to see whether these companies are um, essentially um, tuning their language to um, optimize it for the audiences that they mm -hmm. are addressing. So in the case of financial reports, they are mainly talking to investors. In the case of sustainability reports, it's a wider audience, including, you know, you and me. Mm. Um, and so, so I was interested in looking at how are they using evaluative language strategically. Um, and what, what I found is that uh, there, is, there is really a, like a different approach um, in these two genres. In annual reports, they tend to use less stance. Uh, and I interpret that as an attempt to convey a more objective sort of um, attitude towards the information that they are providing. They are also using a lot of like tentativeness uh, markers uh, so displaying caution and uh, sort of a responsible approach to decision making. Mm. And that's really something that um, uh, that um, investors 
value a lot. So it's it's about creating a sense of competence and a sense of like um, careful decision making. When they're talking to the general public in sustainability reports, they use a lot more explicit evaluative language to come across as excited and committed about, you know, the big ideals mm. of sustainability and um, uh, equality uh, and so on. Um, and they use words, epistemic, epistemic, epistemic markers like know and understand a lot to convey a sense that they're listening, mm -hmm. that they are, uh, you know, that they care about what people think and feel and their priorities. So it's, it's a uh, strikingly different kind of rhetorical mode, if you like, that they deploy in these texts. And uh, when you then interpret that through the lens of um, established, well-established uh, trust um, theories, uh, what we can say is that um, in annual reports, there's more emphasis on ability, which is which is one key component of trust. Whereas in sustainability reports, it's more about communicating ethical principles, honesty, and benevolence, which is this idea that they genuinely care mm. about us. And my final question before we move to the quick question, so it's not actually my final <laughs> question, my final question on this topic before we, we wrap up. Do you think it works? Well, I think <laughs> it's well, yeah, it, it it does actually. And and I have I have the evidence to prove it. Ah, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> so that's an that's an important question. So when when we're doing corpus research like this into the uh, rhetorical aspects of a particular kind of discourse, in this case, corporate discourse, um we can only get so far. We can only say, okay, this is potentially a trust building feature. Mm -hmm. This is uh, what appears to be, or what is manifestly sometimes, like an attempt to uh, convey trust. But um, linguistic description alone cannot tell us whether uh, those linguistic choices actually have an effect on, yeah. on people's thoughts, feelings, attitudes towards those companies in this case. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why I'm a huge fan of combining corpus analysis and discourse and qualitative discourse analysis with experiments. Because experiments allow you to take that lo next logical step of looking at the effects that certain linguistic choices have. Uh, so um, in a paper, a uh, follow-up paper to this particular study on stance that uh, I did together with uh, Chris Hart from Lancaster, we actually tested out some of these linguistic strategies. And we tested out those strategies in the context of um, uh, controversy. So, so we set up a scenario where uh, a pharmaceutical company is accused of having uh, bribed uh, doctors to prescribe their own very expensive um, uh, medicines uh, instead of uh, cheaper, um, you know, white brand generics. Generics, yeah. that's right. And so um, what we wanted to see is whether people who are exposed to the what we call trust building strategies uh, get fooled by them. Ah, right. Oh, this is good. And, okay. and, so, and so that's, um, you know, um, a way of looking into the dark side of trust, how language can be used to manipulate. Mm. Um, and the results are... Yeah, we're quite, um, if you like, bleak. 
because we did find that you know uh, we we gave we split the the participants into two groups and we gave uh, one um, group of participants um, the we showed them a text uh, uh, in the form of a fabricated website that included some of those stance features, um, including the you know knows and understands and the intentions and expressions of intentions and desires mm. and so, and so on, designed to portray the company in a positive light. And then we gave the other group, we didn't, and the other group of participants did not see that uh, text before mm. they both groups saw and read uh, the newspaper article accusing the company. And then we um, gave participants a bunch of questions designed to measure their trust in the company and compare the scores across the two groups. And the results showed that uh, the, comp the participants that had read the website containing all these persuasive strategies were more likely to consider the company trustworthy and to believe the company's denial of the accusations. Mm. So, so I think, uh, you know, uh, that again, I think, um, shines a light on, on, on the power of language. I think, uh, not just to be used as a, it can be used as a source good, obviously, but in this case, since we're taking a more of a critical discourse analytical perspective on this, it can also be used to, to deceive and manipulate, and we should be very cognizant of that. And I think, you know, that's an important thing to, for, for all of us to, to acknowledge and, and to keep in mind, I guess. I think so. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and uh, a cautionary tale. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it reinforces what you found in, in mm, the original yeah. study, right? Which is, you know, brilliant to, mm. well, <laughs> not brilliant, but you know what I mean? It, <laughs> no, it, it, I know, I know. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it does strengthen mm. the, 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 the discourse, the, the corpus, right. yeah, the qualitative yeah. work mm -hmm. that, that you're doing to sort mm -hmm. of uh, feed into all of that stuff. Um, Thank you so much. We, we're gonna Thank we're you. gonna we're gonna come to a close now mm -hmm. as our time is uh, drawing near. Um, as always, I, I like to to finish our conversations with um, some quick questions. Mm -hmm. Although I realize somebody you know somebody ever did a linguistic study of the construction of these quick questions, they would they would tell me <laughs> off because they are not designed really to have quick answers. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> Although I'm getting better because two out of the three of them are mm. now yes, no questions, Ooh. which they never used to be. So Amazing. Uh, let's see if we can see how quick your answers are. Um, quick question number one. Mm -hmm. Is research in corpus linguistics living up to its potential? <laughs> I said the eyebrow. Right. It's great. <laughs> no, I think I think it's a that's a tough question to answer. I know. A, I as know. A yes I or know. No. And, and you know, it's just a shame that I'm kind the one of... asking. I never have to answer it myself. <laughs> yeah. I think I want to say yes. I think there's a lot of exciting stuff going on, especially like in the CADS uh, space. Mm. I think you know, um, a lot of really, really impactful work um, being done. Like you know, if you. I remember the first uh, corpus linguistic conferences I, I attended, uh, you know, a, more than a decade ago now. Uh, it, it, there wasn't nearly as much CADS work as there is today. We're talking uh, about corpus assisted corpus discourse assisted studies. discourse yes. studies. Sorry, yeah. yes. So corpus assisted discourse studies uh, covering a, such a wide range of really important topics, like we mentioned healthcare mm. uh, before, but also like you know, issues around uh, gender and the manosphere online, like um, at, um, uh, um, forensic mm. kind of ling linguistic 
uh, topics as well. So, so I think um, whether, of course, there's always more that we could do, right? But, but I, I feel like it's it's such a uh, now a mature field, and 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 uh, corpus linguistics is really, I feel, um, been effectively incorporated into a lot of other paradigms that didn't mm. used to use it. So, so, so I think, uh, yeah, I want to say yes. To Good, that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, it's it's so nice to hear you say that corpus linguistics is a mature field because mm. I still feel like, and I've said this before previously, but I I do feel like sometimes we find ourselves still talking about it as if it's this newfangled mm. thing that yeah, nobody yeah. knows anything around about. A while now. It's been around for a while. Yeah, I think we can call it mature. I like mm -hmm. that. Yes. Good. Okay. Quick question number two. What is your number one piece of advice for students uh, mm. who are new, beginning their journey into corpus linguistics, mm. new to corpus research? Gosh, <laughs> tricky one. I think I would, I would give them the same advice I give to a lot of my supervisees at different levels, um, which is a very general kind of advice. Um, I think, think about your research question. Um, I think because, because it's in a way, thanks, uh, you know, to the brilliant tools that we have available, uh, like Anconk and Sketch Engine, it feels like doing the descriptive analysis is quite easy, right? At times, I mean, not always, but you know, uh, relatively easy. But often, uh, I think I see uh, some of some of the students I've worked with, uh, at least initially, they fall into the trap of just like getting really engrossed in the data without necessarily thinking big picture. So, what is the what is it that what is the burning question that you have? What is it? What is the um, what is your argument? What do you want to find out, and why does it matter? I think that is something that is just really important to think. Uh, carefully about, especially in the early stages of setting up a PhD project, for instance. Very good advice. Thank you. <laughs> um, finally, it's, I should say, refreshing to, to, to hear an answer that isn't learn how to code, because that is a common answer. I think, absolutely. Mm. I, I, I'm a strong proponent, you know, that the methods should emerge from mm. the research mm. question rather than That's the other right. way around. Mm -hmm. um, Finally, and I was lying when I said that two of them were yes, no questions. Only one of them was actually. So here you go. Another <laughs> open-ended question for you. Nice. What will corpus research look like in 50 years? Mm -hmm. 50 years. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I think, you know, instinctively, it might be, it, I, you know, at this point, it sounds a little bit like a cliche, right? But I think AI mm -hmm. will take over the field. Uh, just like it's taking over our lives. Yeah. And I think, uh, but there's a lot of promise in that. Uh, so I think... AI will enable us to do more sophisticated kind of analysis, more efficiently, um, and do things that we cannot do today. Um, as a case in point, I was just involved in a in a research project uh, uh, with some colleagues from from China, where we tested out uh, ChatGPT as uh, a robotic annotator ah. to, so so uh, we asked uh, we we devised a protocol for using ChatGPT to annotate the pragmatic components of apologies and the results are really good mm -hmm. the coding scheme is quite simple so it's a more of a proof of concept than anything else but i think you know given the pace that this technology is advancing at i think we'll get to a point where we'll be able for instance uh, to uh, create pragmatically coded corpora uh, not in the far distant future, I don't think. Um, 
quite soon, mm. uh, really quickly and really uh, cost efficiently, if you like, right? You, you know very or much better than I do how complicated that kind of the kind of annotation work is, and I think uh, so. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah. So so I think AI is going to be uh, transformative mm. for for the field for sure. I think there's potential from what you're saying, and I agree. You know, an, an equity which doesn't mm. yet exist in terms of the size and scale of corporate different genres you know yeah. there's a huge imbalance as well documented mm -hmm. imbalance mm -hmm. for example mm -hmm. between spoken and written genre mm -hmm. things like that but i i certainly agree that i see the opportunity that the sort of scale that we only really see with these you know massive scraped web corporate mm -hmm. um which are well into the billions you you know mm -hmm. we don't really see that with too many other you know domains or genres mm -hmm. of language mm -hmm. um because of these practical barriers yeah. to mm -hmm. building, gathering, and, and, mm -hmm. and processing the data. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right that mm. I hopefully we'll see the scale uh, catch up yeah. <laughs> with all of these other relatively underrepresented uh, genres in terms of the, you know, just how much data we can process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, let's, let's you know, catch up again in 50 years and find out. Sounds if you were, great. If you were right. <laughs> um, Matteo, thank you so much. It's been such a brilliant, you know, chance to get to talk to you and such an interesting conversation. Thank you, especially for coming face to face, oh, meeting brilliant. us here in, in Corpus Cast Studios. <laughs> Sam's going to tell me off for keeping calling it that. Uh, it's, sorry, it's the Aston Originals Studios. Mm -hmm. um, but we will bring things to a close there. You mm -hmm. may be relieved to hear. <laughs> Congratulations, so much fun. <laughs> Yay! Um, but uh, but yes, that is all the time we have for for this episode of Corpus Cast. Thank you for joining us uh, on your platform of choice, be that. YouTube or Spotify or wherever it is that you get your monthly dose of Corpus Cast. Uh, in the meantime, do let us know your thoughts using the hashtag Corpus Cast and make sure to check out the Aston Corpus Linguistics Research Group on uh, X, as it's now known, of course, at Aston Corpus. And you can follow me at Lovermob. Uh, Corpus Cast is an Aston Originals podcast uh, written and hosted by me, Robbie Love, and produced by Sam Cook. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in 2024. Uh, and thank you once again, Matteo Fuoli, for joining us. Thank you, me Robbie. Thank it's you. It's been great. Thank Thanks. you.